Hello, now we're going to move back into our business stream uh, with another session on delivery. And this is going to be provided by uh, uh, two uh, senior executives from Nikon Seke, who are Tazahiko Murao and Jam Henkens, who are respectively the executive officer and senior manager in the global business development uh, uh, department of Nikon Seke. Uh, and Nikon Seke, of course, are known for delivering uh, very, very high quality buildings uh, at the end of the process. They've also taken part in WAP in a number of times with, with several shortlisted projects, um, some of which I, I, I well remember. And I think what we're going to hear about here is some of the experience, both of the large firm of Nick and Seke, which Tadahiko is going to outline, and then some specific projects, which Jan is going to talk about. So could I ask you both to take it away? Okay. Thank you, Jeremy. So we are very happy to have the opportunity to speak at such a great event. I'm Tadahiko Murao, Nikken Seke, principal and general manager of Barcelona branch. Firstly, I'll explain what company Nikken is and introduce some of our project for about 10 minutes. Then, Ian Henkens, our senior project manager, we talk about his on-site experience for about 20 minutes. Okay, let's go. So Nikken was founded in 1900. We have a history of 120 years, one of the oldest design firms in the world. Nikken is organized from three divisions, planners, architects, and engineers. We can offer so-called one-stop service for the clients. In other words, we take an integrated approach to the project as a professional service. We did over 25,000 projects in more than 50 countries. We have 12 overseas offices. Our headquarters is Tokyo, and we have the uh, office in Osaka, Nagoya, and Fukuoka in Japan. And, uh, and in the foreign countries, we have the Shanghai, Beijing, Dairen, Seoul, Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh, Singapore, Bangkok, and Dubai, Riyadh, Moscow, and in Europe, Barcelona. We have almost 2,000 staff in Nikken, and Nikken Group total. I mean, Nikken Group is that uh, we have the civil engineering and the housing and the interior and stuff like that. So total Nikken Group is around 3,000 staffs. Now I'll show you uh, some of our projects. This is the Tokyo Tower built in 1958. The height is 333 meters. The Tokyo Tower, symbol of the economic recovery from World War II. 
this is uh, our handwrite drawing. So this is another tower. This is a Tokyo Sky Tree built in 2012. The height is 634 meters. This is a new symbol of the Japanese technology. The shape of the tower is gradually changing from triangle to the circle at the top. This is a night view of the Tokyo Sky Tree. This project is called Queen's Square Yokohama. This project is a good example of the TOD project. TOD means Transit Oriented Development Project. The metro station and the big pedestrian mall are connected through the large atrium. Now I'll show you some projects uh, which we got uh, category winner at WAF in the past. So this is uh, Sony City. Now we call the NBF Osaki building. So the idea of bioskin was developed at this project. Rainwater is calculated, uh, collected in this ceramic rover. And in the daytime, the water is vaporized. This water vaporization makes the building and the surrounding area more cooler, especially in the summertime. This is a detailed photograph of the ceramic rover. This is an, another category winner project. Cope uh, Kyosai building. There are 4,000 chains on the facade, eight types of 4,000 chains. The drip tube was attached to the top of each. So this green building, uh, it, um, it's uh, by this uh, green uh, building, and this building is cooler than the other building. So for about three uh, degree uh, Celsius uh, cooler than the other building in the summertime. This is a sectional drawing. On the top, there are hot and cooler pipes in the concrete slab. On the floor, supply air is coming from the under the floor through the punched carpet perforated carpet, and also from the uh, punched raised floor. So this is a future project. We got the uh, WAF 10 prize in 2019. Uh, the name is uh, W350 project, future project. The challenge it's 350 meter super high rise timber construction. The internal structure is done by uh, pure wood. 
The outer structure is done by timber and steel hybrid structure. This is a view of the lobby. This will be the cityscape view in the future in Tokyo. Now I'll show you some of the global project. This is a future Campano project, the stadium for the FC Barcelona a soccer team, football team. Nikken won the international competition in 2016. This project is a refurbishment project. We'll make a big membrane roof onto the existing stadium. The main concept uh, of this uh, project is open to all. There are no facade in this stadium. People can enjoy these open concourse and the open spaces. And also people can enjoy the comfortable sunlight and wind Mediterranean climate in Barcelona. <laughs> this project is uh, we call the Wanzabir project in Dubai. The Tower A, 300 meter, and Tower B, 240 meter, are connected uh, by the glass tube, so-called the link, at, 100, at 123 meter above from the ground level. This is a view of the Wanza view. Uh, that project is uh, Tadaur Tower in Diado. So that's it for me, from me. And now let me introduce Jan Henkes, our project senior manager. Thank you very much. Okay, Jan san, well, thank you. please. Thank you, Murao san. Thank you, Jeremy. Hello, and thanks for having us. Um, I would like to continue this session actually with a, sharing a few thoughts actually on, on quality and delivery, really, this being picked up or inspired by the, uh, by the session's theme being post-planning and uh, the, the business of architecture. And as my career actually with Nikken coincides almost with, almost exactly with a renewed strategic push from about 12, 13 years ago into new markets and most specifically the Middle East, um, we spent quite a few soul-searching hours actually with the question that you can just see there on the screen in terms of namely thinking about what influence do we as architects really have to make the delivery of the final product, namely the build, building as the final deliverable, really, you know, stand up to the aspirations of quality that we're used to and that clients actually hire us from. Um, we're a bit pampered in Tokyo by um, contractors or a contracting environment, construction industry that is actually used to delivering very, very high workmanship. Um, but you can't really take this for granted when you take your business overseas. Um, we found over the years it's very easy to actually draw and specify things the way we're used to and send the PDF over to the client. But at the, when it comes to construction, we're at the mercy of the local market, really. 
Um, so what is Arctic? It's can we do to actually improve the odds that what gets built is really, really the quality that the client is paying us for? That's a very crucial question, I think, for the business of architecture, really. And I would like to start off with, you know, the obvious one is obviously we're influencing what gets built in the first place by designing or by specifying what it is, maybe BIM models, drawings, and so on and so forth. Um, that's the obvious part. That's our business, really. Um, then the other end of it is the so-called post-contract where you may or may not really be involved in site supervision or design supervision. Um, so you may or may not have a leg to stand on in influencing what really gets going on site. Um, but that might literally be not part of your contract um, or especially it gets very difficult if you're trying to sort of project your business into new markets overseas outside of your home market. It's really a difficult business proposition to actually move people overseas and, and really have an influence, a team that can influence construction there. Um, and it's a contractual issue, of course, in the construction contract. So I'd like to suggest a, a, a but with a you know hint at the arrow there in the middle leading from one to the other which is really what's usually called tender or tender support services, um, which I found over the years are really often an afterthought in architectural design contracts. Maybe the last bit, um, the appendix on the um, architectural design scope is, you know, response to RFIs and clarifications really on the, on the tender before the contractor really takes over. So it's often considered really a hassle, but I would really like to consider that um, an opportunity and that's actually, I found this borne out in my career whenever we were involved in tenders and whenever we had the chance to be involved in a both pre and post contract, I just found the transition absolutely important in managing risk. So it's not just a business proposition for yourself. It's really a good argument to add value to the client's business actually in managing his risk down. Um, often architects are not involved in setting up the actual construction contract, but you don't need to be in order to influence the tender. That's what I suggest. Um, practically, I think I just listed four bullet points here in terms of what you can really very specifically and with very simple means do to have an influence there. One would be to influence the criteria by which the contractors get selected and evaluated in the first place. If you have a chance to get into that discussion very early on in parallel to the design, when this is still being done on the client side usually or with the client project managers, um, the task there would be to simply make sure that the criteria are set up in such a way that in, they, they reward technical capability and quality aspirations as opposed to just selecting the cheapest bidder. And I would like to suggest that that can be done and can be influenced even in government procurement setups where everything is about making things, you know, apple to apple comparison and then shoot the cheapest bidder. So there's still a lot of influence that architects can have. Then once the pre-qualification or the qualification of contractors is underway, you should, I think, proactively really sit down with these contractors and actually explain to them the design intent and also explain to them which parts of the design are actually difficult. Um, I believe in the UK it's actually a legal requirement that you have to explain deviations from certain standards to the contractor, otherwise he's not bound to them. And while that might go a little far, I think it, there's a real value for the contractor, but also for the client in ensuring that the contractor really understands what he has to do. Um, again, the situation that I found time and again in my career is that the contractor sends the bidding team, the commercial team, the, insur the guys who knows all about the insurance to these meetings and, and that the commercial team takes over on the client side as well, unless the architect really pushes for making sure that there's technical explanations and technical responses that are being discussed really. So that the tender bid or the bidding 
with the results of the bet really become that much more robust and reliable. Um, that goes the other way. Um, the contractor also has a chance to talk back to you then, and that means you can understand what the contractor's challenges are. And that might be you know, supply chain issues because he finds it difficult to get certain materials that you're specified or, or, or constructability issues, geometrical issues. So you can have an actual conversation and ideally, depending on the timeline that you have to maybe finalize, say, a contract set, um, you could actually even take this into account in a final set or suggest to the client that there is an issue there that might actually be worth considering and, and activate the necessary change control procedures early on. Really. And again, all of this adds value, tangible value to the client and to the Arctic by managing by minimizing the risk of claims in the construction and getting it closer to an actual collaborative setup. And um, one of the biggest boons actually, in, and especially where I look, do a lot of work for Nikon in the Middle East, is that the construction contract almost by definition forces all the parties into a very antagonistic setup. Um, and that's the complete opposite of what we find in, in our home market in Japan, where everything is about collaborative um, problem solving, really. And I think there is a direct correlation between the quality um, in the, of the actual final product and the, the contract setup. So I'd like to illustrate this on, on, on two particular examples to have a bit of a more specific um, idea of what we did really. This is Tadawa Tower, actually the last project that Tutmurasan just uh, finished his slides with. Um, this is currently under construction in Saudi Arabia in Riyadh. It's going to be finished uh, next year. So it's a very advanced stage of construction. And we have been, um, privileged to have the opportunity to actually do everything in this building, really from the architectural design to the, all this uh, structural MEP engineering, all the specialties from start to finish, um, including very unusual for us, actually full site supervision, even on this building in Saudi Arabia. So that's what it looks like um, probably a year ago, actually. And what we really did learn on this, uh, it was a very steep learning curve on this. Um, we went through a very, very, deep um, pre-qualification projects actually very early on with the client's project managers um, to their credit and um, visiting on 20 construction sites in Saudi Arabia and mostly in the UAE, some 20 contractors, um, not relying on the documentation that provided, but actually having them show us around active current construction sites and understanding their setup, understanding their management procedures and understanding how they deal with problems and solving problems. So. Um, looking behind the curtain there was really an eye-opener actually and really, really helped us on the second item in this list you know, to write our own specifications. Um, I think like many other companies, there's a set of standard specifications that are usually being applied and most architects will know what they say but hardly understand why they say that. And one of the steepest, one of the best, best experiences for my career almost in hindsight, I would say that we took the decision of writing a complete specification literally from scratch, including division one, the general requirements that really drive the workmanship. Um, so that took a lot of effort, but in absorbing all of these things that we learned and all the discussions that we had about quality into this specifically for the project was really, really a big driver behind making sure that the quality gets delivered really. Um, now, zero, compromise which is, is really more about a mindset than anything you can write and we had the great luck here that we had a client project managers and, and ourselves really um, all on the table agreeing that there's a zero com zero compromise mindset when it comes to quality and workmanship really so it took the contractor a little while to realize that we really wanted everything perfect every time all the time and it was a huge effort to actually make sure that nothing gets ever dropped and, and making sure it gets corrected 
but it was in the end worth it. And even the contractor's staff actually picked up on it when they saw that this is a building that every one of them will put on their CVs and it will be on every portfolio and every home page as, a, as a, almost a marketing tool for them, um, for sure. And all the subcontractors even, and the manufacturers. And that really showed in, in the build quality. Um, the fourth item on the list is, sounds very simple, but one of the very simple tools we employed in our specifications to make sure that there's an extensive range of, of benchmark um, mock-ups being built, even of some mundane items, and that they get built very, very early on, specifically in the construction, not just as late as possible as they usually get done. It's because the main purpose of those was not actually to show the client around, but to show the contractor's stuff around and use these benchmarks as training tools to get the workmanship just right, because this is a high-rise building, so there's a lot of repetitive parts on the standout floor. So if you can make out, the, make sure that you flush out all the workmanship issues on the mock-up, you don't have to repeat them all over again on every floor. And that took a lot of time to approve the mock-ups at first. I think we spent a year on the typical floor toilet mock-up, um, but I think it prevented a vast amount of issues recurring then on every floor. So I think in hindsight, I think we, very, we feel very much um, confirmed in that sense. This is another building um, that I looked after basically concurrently to the Stottable Tower for a while. Uh, Minada Astra is the, currently one of the highest buildings in Jakarta in Indonesia. Um, it was finished in 2017. This is what it looks like. It's finished on cost and on schedule, actually, in fact, slightly faster than scheduled. And I think that's a testament um, also to the management um, that we were able to implement together with the client. On this building, we've only done the architecture, really, instruction, everything was carried out independently. There was a lot of coordination again with other actors, really. Um, in this case, the client was willing to take a bit more commercial risk and went for a direct negotiated tender route, um, which gave us the opportunity, um, also made us, forced us to redo our entire workflows, but gave us the opportunity to actually drip feed information and start discussions with the contractor while we're actually finalizing our final design. So there's no tender document as such. Um, so there's a trade-off between business-wise, between you know the additional hassle of having to go through these discussions, but then we save the stage for tender document effectively. And due to having a chance of having these discussions with the contractor, we could actually really tackle a lot of almost pre-approvals on tricky or, or high volume, high value materials as part of this discussion. It doesn't mean we settled on a particular material, but we could actually visit manufacturers and visit the contractor's supply chain, or especially on tricky items like natural stone, which, of which there's quite a lot in this building, which is traditionally very tricky to procure and get the quality right of. And that was a big boost, again, saving a lot of time, a lot of hassle later on during the construction. And again, we found ourselves confirmed in, in thinking that the collaborative approach between the client or the client project managers, the architects and the contractors, regarding of what, of, of what the contract conditions actually say, is really a very, very critical essence uh, towards delivering real quality. So in a nutshell, um, that's it. And I would be really looking forward to see what other comments Jerry might have or what questions the audience might throw up in that regard. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both, uh, Hiko and Jan, for, for an excellent description, both of the sort of overview of, of what Nikon Seke is and what it can do, and also getting a little bit into the mechanics of how you deliver projects. And I wonder if I can ask you both for a quick comment first on uh, how you manage the relationship between the designers in your firm 
and the managers, the project managers, specifically in, in, in your firm? Because in a previous session on delivery, um, the, that relationship was, was, was highlighted as something which can be problematic, but clearly there are ways of managing it effectively. I wonder if you can say something about how you do it. It's a case by case basis of you know the chief architect and the PM being paired on on, on um, big complex projects and it depends on personalities and everybody needs to be professional to make it work. But in principle, I think it helps to have a clear idea or a clear mindset in saying uh, we we are not a project management company; we're a design company. So the the, the chief designer has, still has the primacy of over what gets designed. But the project manager is is at his side, clear a path for him, also make sure the paper trail is, is put in place, but also has the authority and the, the, the characteristics necessary to maybe ping the chief architect sometimes and say, look, this is, are you really sure this is what we should be doing? So there's always this sort of creative, this, this you know, sounding issues out against each other when it is necessary. It also helps to have this double head um, towards the client sometimes, you can almost play good cop and bad cop sometimes, um, which really helps to flush out issues and, and uh, you know, advance discussions the way they need to go without maybe, without taking it too far sometimes. Tadahike, do you have thoughts on this as well? <laughs> yes, and uh, so the, before we go on to the, the project and the uh, designer and the project manager is selected, and uh, we communicate very well. And then, so when we were going to go to the client, we go to the client together and communicate very well and um, um, share the idea together. So that's a Nikken style, I think. So it's a, it, it, it is a form of collaboration then that you have to set up the right um, relationships in order to be able to collaborate with the internal members of the team but also the client and then as you were saying i think it's very strikingly on the project in indonesia um that you were working with the contractor at quite an early stage and i think a lot of architects would be envious from that sort of setup where you don't have to deliver the, you know, an enormous amount of work for the tender documentation which is then going to be uh, revised anyway that you're you have the contractor on board and therefore you can work out from an earlier stage, uh, more collaboratively, how to solve some of these problems. Yeah, I think that was that was really a really a good experience, and and I think that's why I come back to this tender process actually being a bit of a my impression is a bit of an underappreciated stage, and it's often neglected in business terms because unless it's a, a defined part of your scope, it happens by definition at the end of the design when we've spent all the man hours. Nobody really wants to go and then tour another couple of contract aside and have all of the discussion when the architects are needed back at home to actually finalize the documentation. So that's another place where it actually helps to have a separate sort of project manager or a separate technical person to go through that and absorb that input and feed it back into the design workflow. Yeah, uh, and I, I, I think, uh, Jan, one of the slides you showed, the, the sort of pre-qualification criteria for the tender process is, uh, again, a, a, almost a, a, a skeletal sort of uh, framework for getting the whole complex business of delivering the building on site as right as possible 
um, you know, the, the, the explanation of the design intent of the contractor, um, the understanding, as you say, of the challenges the contractor might face in building that design, whether they're to do with the supply chain or to do with the geometrical and constructional issues, and then feeding back into the design. It's treating the contractor like a grown-up around the table, which all too often, certainly in the United Kingdom, the contractor is, uh, you know, likes to think they're in charge of everything and therefore gets treated uh, as if they're um, at the sort of general dog's body or the servant who has to do what uh, generally it's he, he is told to do. Yes, that's, that's very much something I would, I would say is, is reflected in my experience. And one of the biggest eye-openers on, on that pre-qualification tour through the Middle East for me was um, there's a gap between what, who has the best documentation and who's really doing the best work on site. It's not the same contractors necessarily. Um, we found a couple of tier two contractors who were not really giving, putting that much effort into the documentation, but they were really, really genuinely doing a good job on site. Really, and that's what you ultimately want to look at. And likewise, it was also very educating, educational to understand. Um, everybody assumes the vast, the biggest contractors can do anything, but that's not necessarily the case if you understand how they're doing it and who they're subcontracting it to, and and whether that's a long-standing relationship or, or a case-by-case thing. That again makes enables you to to judge those risks much more accurately on behalf of the client. So that's why I keep saying this is not just a hassle. It enables you to actually add value to the client. And if, you, if you're able to phrase it or frame it in this sort of discussion to say, we're driving, we're helping to drive down your risk, um, I think a lot of clients will be willing to actually actually look at that a little bit differently. Yes, I, I think yes, your I, point is very well, well made, that the, um, looking at the tender process as an opportunity rather than as this terrible hurdle that has to be overcome. Um, is, 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 is well worth bearing in mind here. Um, but another thing that, that strikes me, and perhaps Tadahiko, you could comment on this, is uh, in Japan, the, the, the big contracting firms still have the contracting skills. They may subcontract to some extent, but they still know how to source them. They still know how they all fit together. And sadly, in the UK, the biggest contractors have become you know, managers of cash flow, um, and they just see it in terms of how much they have to dole out to each individual supplier or subcontractor, which, of course, they do with great reluctance because they've won the work through a competitive tender and probably have a tiny profit margin. But I guess in Japan it's a bit different, and maybe you could say something about how the big contractors work in Japan. Yes, so the, the construction in Japan, the construction company has a lot of knowledge and technology. So sometimes before we go on to the design development stage and we will collaborate together to develop the, what is most important and valuable for the client together. So that's a client decision. But sometimes if we would do the big stadium, the big highlights project, then sometimes we are doing, we collaborate together. The, uh, the design development stage, and um, and so there are very very flexible way uh, we we can accommodate uh, what client want and what the project uh, situation is. And of course, being able to define those goals with the client at an early stage, and I, and then with the design team 
whether it's in-house, whether you have external consultants, and ideally as well with the contractor. But I, I wonder if, if I might float an idea here, um, which is slightly a counterintuitive one, but it seems to be the implication of what you're saying, which is that somehow the culture of design is international, that, that the uh, architects uh, and the way architecture works across the world is increasingly compatible, whether it's in Japan, whether it's in Spain, whether it's in the Middle East or Barcelona or Indonesia. And what changes, the really big differences that have to be managed are in the sort of local contracting uh, methods and uh, traditions and I suppose even the culture of how contractors work. Um, it's quite different. I mean, maybe in some countries, they're much better at using steel than concrete and vice versa. So uh, I wonder if, if, if you can comment on that, whether it's true that design is perhaps more of an international practice, where contracting is always specific to the particular place where you're working. Okay. Yes, I'll yeah, pass, I, I think that's, yeah, I, I think that's, that's entirely true because I mean, it's it's called it's it's building a, it's the construction site by definition is local. No, no matter where you do the design, you can do the design wherever you want, but the site is by definition local. So you could even bring an international contractor from the neighboring countries in a joint venture format. But but again, you have to Im import the skills by importing people if necessary, and and then you run into everything from immigration to customs and materials and whether the VAT applies of that country or this country, and, and how does a contractor make sure to cover all of his risks when he has to do this at the, in, in three months for an entire building at the tender stage? So I think we just need to, like you said, treat contractors as grown-ups and also appreciate that they're all just trying, he's trying to cover his risk, which is entirely valid. And if you can actually address some of these, understand what these risks are, at this stage, nobody's yet locked into this contractual positions so you can still address this um, at an early stage without you know when people before people get down into their trenches you know and it also depends a bit on on what, how much risk or, or what's the contractor what the, what's the client's position towards all of this but again that's if, if you take the chance to actually explain it, the value to them then I think most clients will be very much willing to listen to it and Tadahiko I think you had something to say about this subject as well Okay, so the, I'm not uh, working for the Campano Stadium in Spain. This is my, uh, my first time uh, to design uh, in Spain. But I'm very surprised that um, the, the concept of the uh, architecture law or the, uh, the technology or idea of something like uh, waterproofing and uh, evacuation, it's uh, uh, the the different slightly different. However, the main concept is that almost same. So I think the world is almost same, not uh, uh, perfect same, complete same, but uh, almost same. So if you have the uh, certain uh, the idea, concrete idea, then you can use uh, your idea and the knowledge to the, any country. I think, I believe. That's my experience. Yes. 
that, that's, that's a very interesting um, um, perception on this. And it relates to, I think, what have to be the final topic, I'm afraid, because we're coming to the end of the, of the uh, time we have. Um, and it's about how you can integrate research into design, because I well remember the 350-meter-high timber frame tower from last year. Um, and that, I guess, is largely a research project or draws on research that you're doing. Uh, and I wonder if you can say a bit about how research feeds both your design and your delivery capabilities within Nick and Seke. So the, about uh, W358, uh, we, the client is uh, uh, timber uh, wooden company uh, called Sumito Moringyo. And that the client would like to uh, make the, would like to use more timber for the uh, Japanese uh, city. So that's why they have the research center and the Nikken and the uh, Sumitomo Forest Company uh, collaborate together and investigate together. So and the, uh, about the W350, the case that we collaborate together. And sometimes we have the, we have the research company, uh, Nikken Research Company. So sometimes we uh, work internally with uh, our own research company. Sure. Yes, do you have any idea? Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much so. Sometimes if you're lucky, like in this W350, that a company pays you to do something experimental, which is almost like a research grant, if you, if you will. Um, and sometimes you just have to define your own internal sort of task force with a specific goal and allocate some money to it to, to get some specific information that the company feels is just valuable enough to, to have or just try something out. Maybe you find a way to do it as an internal competition or something to get some value other than just the the information as, as the role, some fun out of it maybe. Um, and unfortunately in terms of business, it's very, very difficult to do anything in, on an actual project budget because it's, it's extremely difficult to justify this sort of man hours involved in this, this part of your fees where everybody's just trying to, to just go, go as low as possible sometimes. Yes, I, and I, I think uh, what I, one of the things that interests me about research, and I, I think Jan, your point is well made, that it's very difficult to justify uh, doing research on a normal project budget, particularly where you're, you're bidding competitively for the, for, for the work. But the fact that you have this uh, accumulated experience in a firm that goes back 120 years, and also accumulated experience of working in different parts of the world, um, gives enormous authority to, to, to what you do. And the fact that you are open to discussing with the client, not just how you get the best possible uh, delivery, but also how you can manage risk. What risk can you take and what reward would you hope to obtain from getting that risk? Which, of course, is, 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 is an enormously complicated equation um, which we've discussed in this uh, business stream in other sessions, particularly around the issue of professional indemnity insurance. Um, but I think that what we've seen uh, from, from, from your presentation uh, is uh, uh, how the embodied skill of a long-standing and very large firm with a multinational experience can bring real benefits to the client through ensuring the highest possible quality of design. So thank you very much.